If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and have truly trusted in him or born again, you have been equipped this morning with enough truth in the singing alone, in addition to the psalm, to withstand the subject that we're going to consider this morning, which is heavy. I invite you to turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 25 as we continue our study of the culmination of the Olivet Discourse in verses 31 through 46. Last Lord's Day morning, we looked together at what 31, uh, verse 31 meant by Christ's glory, his glorious throne. We looked ahead to the glory of Christ's throne and, and that theme in the Old Testament scriptures. This morning, I want to look at the end of the passage at verse 46, and then, God willing, next Sunday, we'll come back and consider it all together. And I trust that as we've taken the time to consider Christ's glorious throne, as we've taken time this morning to consider what Jesus teaches about eternal punishment, that when we come to the judgment itself of the sheep and goats, we'll be better equipped to understand the significance of that, that moment which is coming when Jesus returns. This is a, a heavy subject this morning, but it is an important subject for us to give attention to. And I've been saying for probably a few years now that at some point we would take time to study the doctrine of hell because Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, has referenced hell more than any other teacher, as it were, in the scriptures. He speaks of hell more than anyone else. And so we have not, to this point in this long series through the Gospel of Matthew, ever taken a time when we've just slowed down and considered what it is that Jesus is talking about when he talks about hell and about eternal punishment. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. But again, our consideration this morning will be primarily on uh, verse 46 and the significance of eternal punishment. Jesus said, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray.
Oh God, we come to you and ask in these next moments that you would have mercy by your spirit be with me, be with us, as we consider together what your word has to say about the last judgment. Dispel wrong notions and put within our hearts the truth so that we might fear you, love you, and serve those around us more fervently by telling them about your son. In his name we ask. Amen. My guess is that many of you here this morning have never heard a sermon on hell. You've maybe heard it referred to. I do reference hell quite frequently. But it may be that many of you have never actually sat under a sermon specifically on what the Bible has to say about hell, and the time has come for that. It's come mainly because that is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 26, and he is not the first time he has referred to this place of eternal fire, of eternal punishment. He's spoken of Hades, of hell, and we need to know what he's talking about. He's deeply concerned that those who heard him then, his apostles, his disciples rather, on the Mount of Olives and throughout the centuries and down to this day, he's deeply concerned that we understand what God has in store for those who are apart from Christ. It's a warning. And we live in a day when this doctrine is largely neglected. It's outright opposed. That's not new. Uh, There are those who, theologians and pastors, who teach and preach and embrace what's known as conditionalism or annihilationism, this idea that somehow that unbelievers and those, the unrighteous apart from Christ, that that they may stand at the day of judgment, but then they will simply cease to exist and be destroyed. That's a rather old uh, line of thought that is alive and active in our day. But as I think about it, my guess would be that in our day, most evangelical churches, we deny this doctrine simply by ignoring it. We've ignored it. We know it's there in the Bible. We know that Jesus talks about it, but we're uncomfortable with it, understandably. But we're uncomfortable with it to a degree that maybe we're embarrassed by it maybe ashamed. And so we've tucked it away. It's, it's somewhere in the church history closet, but it's there kind of like maybe some old furniture or clothes from a bygone generation that we tend to think today is of little or no use. After all, if you preach about hell, who's going to come to your church? How's that going to grow your church? The problem is that if you do dispense with and do away with the doctrine of hell, and I'm going to say this very strongly, you embrace a different God than the God of the Bible, a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different cross, a different view of sin. The doctrine of hell is not peripheral. It is absolutely pivotal. And if we neglect it, if we deny it or modify it, we go into perilous waters and preach a gospel that is not the gospel that was preached by Christ and his apostles. It's that serious. It is not a matter that good, respecting Christians can disagree on. It is like the deity of Christ and like the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. We must hold to a true and right and accurate view of hell. 
And that's what I want to help you with this morning. Of course, it is sobering. It is heavy. No one wants to think about it. And that's okay. I, I think that it's understandable. The way that Jesus teaches about hell and about Hades, it's abhorrent. It's terrible. It's not appealing. It's not something that we should be terribly interested in. There's a fearfulness about it. There's a horror about it. It's in some ways understandable to avoid it. But we can avoid it when our Lord teaches directly about it. We must, if we're to receive him, receive his words. And he speaks very directly, very plainly, and repeatedly about a place called hell, which will be eternal punishment for the unrighteous. And I want to look with that, with that, at that with you this morning, that truth. By way of introduction, I, I want to note that there are two primary terms used in the Gospel of Matthew and in the New Testament for what you might call hell, Hades and Gehenna. Hades and Gehenna. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, for example, verse 23, he judges a town nearby where he grew up, Capernaum, and he says, you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. So Capernaum, for their unbelief, will descend to Hades. In Luke chapter 16, verse 23, Jesus spoke a parable about a rich man and a man named Lazarus. And the rich man did not treat Lazarus well. He, he was an ungodly man, and upon death he was judged. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 16, verse 23, pictures this ungodly, wicked, rich man in Hades. So I want to be clear up front this morning that when unrighteous, unbelieving people apart from Christ die now, their spirits go to Hades. It's a place, if you will, of temporary judgment. It is, it's not the final hell, which is Gehenna. It is not the lake of fire, it's a place of the dead apart from Christ. It it's, has a lot in common with Sheol in the Old Testament, that Hebrew term. Those apart from Christ, when they die, their bodies go into the ground, into the grave, or ashes, dust to dust. But their spirit, their soul, is consciously in Hades, like the rich man. And that is the beginning of judgment with no opportunity to repent. It's not a place of purgatory. It's not a place for second thoughts or second chances. They will be, the spirits of the unbelieving, unrighteous, will be raised with resurrected bodies in the last day to stand before God in judgment. But in Revelation, we learn that they, in chapter 20, that they are raised only, only to be committed to the lake of fire, Gehenna, the final hell, if you will. So I say all that to say, when we talk about hell, there is a hell of now and the final hell, Gehenna. But what we're talking about this morning, what Jesus teaches about is, if you will, the hell experience. And I don't mean that in a any kind of trite way. There's a hell of now, specifically Hades. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, refers to this place when he says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Under punishment for the day of judgment. And so upon death, there is an entrance by the unrighteous and the wicked, unbelieving, into hell, but is Hades, is a place of punishment 
temporarily until the dead are raised to stand and give account for the deeds done in the body. Revelation chapter 20 verse 13 speaks of that day when the sea will give up the dead which are in it and death and Hades give up the dead which were in them. You see that? Hades as apparently a temporary holding place punishment. And they were judged, Revelation 20 verse 13, everyone according to their deeds. What's in Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 when Jesus speaks to those goats, if you will, or the wicked on his left, he says in verse 41, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. At the return of Christ, this judgment will take place before the thousand-year reign, and it, it may be, I'm not certain, but that these particular group of people who are judged, and we'll look more at this next week, enter immediately into the eternal fire, into Gehenna. They go from their bodies and spirit directly to hell. We have this precedent for this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, where even before Satan in the end is committed to the lake of fire, to Gehenna, the beast, this antichrist figure, and the false prophet in Revelation 19, verse 20, quote, were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, end quote. So they're thrown into the lake of fire. They, they, they pass by the, the final judgment, as you were, and God just condemns them and damns them, as it were, to Gehenna, the lake of fire, immediately, straight there. It's simply helpful and important to understand that there's a hell of now and a final hell, the lake of fire, Gehenna, both places of judgment. In the remainder of our time this morning, I'll be primarily focusing on Gehenna or the final hell because this is the eternal punishment that Jesus is speaking of. But as long as we understand that upon death that no one has a second chance, and even if Hades is a temporal place of judgment, once you enter into that you enter into eternal judgment because you enter there, your spirit, your soul, only to be raised, to stand before God, to give an account in the last day, and then to be committed to the final hell, Gehenna. I want to share with you six truths about hell this morning. We've identified a couple of the different terms for hell in the New Testament, but I want to present to you six truths about hell. First, number one, hell is in keeping with and an expression of the holy character of God and Christ. I know it's long. Let me say it again. Hell is in keeping with, it means it's in agreement with, and an expression of the holy character of God and Jesus Christ. Before and behind Jesus' repeated teaching on the doctrine of hell and warning unbelievers against it, is the whole Old Testament scriptures revealing the good, holy, pure, kind, loving, righteous character of God. Psalm 119, verse 68. And by the way, I'm going to move quickly this morning. You probably won't have time to turn to these references. You can write them down if you'd like. Psalm 119, verse 68. The psalmist there in Psalm 119 says concerning God, God, you are good and do good. God is good. God does good. 
That means in God preparing hell for the devil and his angels and his judgment is good. It's in agreement with his goodness and it's in agreement, hell is in agreement with his holy character. For example, his goodness. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, Moses speaking of God, praising God, calls God the rock. And he says, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. Whatever thoughts we have concerning hell... When we consider the Bible's teaching on hell, we must consider and look at the doctrine of hell from the vantage point of the full, holy character of God. So important. So important that we think about hell from the solid, firm, clear ground of the revealed character of God primarily in the scriptures, but subsequently, if you're a believer, in your own experience in life. We've seen many sorrows and trials, but if you're a believer in Christ, you know God's good. You know he's loving. You know he's kind. You not only have read of it in the scriptures, you've experienced his loving kindness. So as we consider the doctrine of hell, we consider it from the vantage point of I know, what the, I know this about God because God's revealed it to me in the scriptures and God has revealed it to me in my life. Whatever else I think about hell, I'm going to view it within the boundaries of the revelation of the character of God as revealed in scripture. We may have questions about how the revelation concerning hell is in keeping with the character of God, but we dare not question God and his character from the standpoint of our own ignorance. As Paul says in Romans, who are you? We need to acknowledge in humility even what we know about God Though accurate and true from the scriptures, the reality is we have very low thoughts of God. Even the highest thoughts of God among us here this morning, even the one with the loftiest thoughts, the greatest thoughts about God, will be shocked and awed when he or she stands in the presence of God. He is so great. He is so high above our highest thoughts. Which means then that sin is worse than we think. Even the ones among us who have the worst thoughts about sin, we we have the most, we, we understand that sin is hateful. We, even those who may have true thoughts about sin, we still as of yet do not understand the true wickedness and sinfulness of sin. We don't understand, we do, we've heard it, we understand that men and women are made in the image of God, but it's particularly in our generation, we do not truly understand, because of our sin and our feebleness, how truly and gloriously men and women bear the image of God and the responsibility that comes with it, and therefore the implications for what it means not to worship God as Romans 1 talks about. We need to understand that hell, as taught by Christ, is in keeping with the full character of God. In other words, hell is not an aberration. It's not a deviation. It's not God part of him. It's not possible. Our God is one. He is indivisible. He is one God. He doesn't have love over here, hatred over here. He is all that he is 
everywhere and at all times. Hell is in keeping with God's goodness. Hell is in keeping with God's grace. Hell is in keeping with God's righteousness and God's love. Because God is God over hell, not Satan. So there's nothing about hell that undoes or diminishes the good, righteous, just, holy character of God. We have to start there, else we will get in trouble. Secondly, this morning, hell is and will be perfectly just. Hell is and will be perfectly just. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, as God sent angels to see if, as it were, Sodom and Gomorrah, the sin was so great, and God actually, perhaps in a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ, the Son, met with Abram, Abraham, and Abraham knew that judgment was coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah, and his relative Lot lived there, his nephew. And Abraham pleading for God's mercy. And he says to God in verse 25 of Genesis 18, Far be it from you, O God, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the all the earth deal justly or do justice? Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? It's, it's, it's a question, it's, it's not a, like a real, it's a rhetorical question. Of course he will. As we've heard, all his ways are perfect, all his ways are just. He can only do what is just. And so, understand when we think about hell, it is a display of the perfect justice of God. Nothing unjust about it. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. At that time when the unrighteous will be raised to give account for their deeds done in the body, listen to the language. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Individual judgment according to each man and woman's deeds for good, for ill. And the context here is all their deeds were tainted with sin and they are judged for their sinfulness. And they are cast into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Think of it this way. When we think about hell, no one has to concern themselves with being judged in hell for doing something wrong they didn't do. Won't happen. God is a just judge. He's not going to punish anyone for a sin or deed that they are not personally culpable and responsible for. That would be unjust. That would be to falsely accused. Likewise, No one has to concern themselves with being judged for not doing something right that they, in fact, did. In other words, God is not going to miss any of the facts. Christ is not going to miss any of the facts. One of the difficulties we have in life now is when we are innocent and we need to defend ourselves, we understand that we need to gather a lot of information, we have to make a case, maybe we have to hire a lawyer, we have to laboriously present the facts, and we have to do it in a way that's understood. That won't have to be done with God. He knows it all. All things are open before him with whom we have to do, the scriptures say. 
The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Hell is, in the language of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, retribution. Exact retribution. Retribution is justice language. It's receiving what one is due. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 46, eternal punishment. Punishment punitive. It's a justice term. God does not punish unjustly. He can't. It would be contrary to his nature. So hell is just. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, as one of the examples of Jesus speaking in the Gospel of Matthew about hell. And this is helpful to underscore the specificity of the judgment in hell. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 Jesus says, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Deeds and words. But notice the language there, accounting. Exact. Exact. Hell is and will be Perfectly, exactly just. This is very important. Hell is horrible to think about. It strains the heart and mind. And I don't think we're meant to think on it very often. We are to set our minds on Christ. Because I don't think we can handle it. God knows that. We need to know the truth. But one of the truths that helps us is to understand not one single person will experience anything more or anything less than justice. Justice rendered by holy God, who is all that he is. So thirdly, what that means this morning is that hell will be varied in degree. There will be varied degrees of judgment. It's in some ways a restatement of point two. Let me restate, put it this way, kind of recapping point two. There is and there will be a because for each individual in hell. Why? There is and there will be a because. That's what justice is. And God will know it and God will render it. In other words, hell is reasonable. It stretches our imagination. We have questions. We have wondering, and I understand that. We are not God. But we need to understand if hell is just, that means it'll be reasonable. And thirdly, it'll be varied in degree. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Verse 24. There, again, Jesus is denouncing the cities where his miracles were done, but there was so little response. And he's, again, denouncing Capernaum. And he says in verse 24, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So there's more or less tolerable. More tolerable speaks of degrees. There is no such thing as a light 
hell experience. But it is truth that no one, again, will experience anything more or less than what their life, their words, their deeds exactly warrants. You see this in 2 Peter chapter 2. You can turn there with me if you'd like. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. This is the second time we've referenced this. This is important, instructive teaching by Peter, who was sitting there on the day that Jesus taught about eternal punishment on the Mount of Olives. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Peter there says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially, verse 10, those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. And then he continues on the list. There's an especially. Especially speaks of degrees. There are the unrighteous and then there are the unrighteous. There are the wicked and there are the wicked. And only God who is judge is fit to determine and judge those degrees. But that helps us. It's not a, there is a common experience that is hell. We understand it's a place. We understand there's darkness and we'll look at this more banishment, fire. But somehow in that horrible place, God's exact justice is measured out to each individual one. God is just. One more reference quickly. You don't need to turn there, but Hebrews 10 verse 29. There is much severe punishment for those who have heard of Christ. The author of Hebrews says, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant? In other words, if you've heard of Christ, if you've heard of the gospel of salvation, the death of Christ on the cross, the blood of Christ, you're in a much worse situation if you're an unbeliever because you will receive a more severe punishment because you had truth that someone else who hadn't heard of Christ, never had. All they had was general revelation and the internal testimony that there is a God and a law written upon the heart. You had that and you heard of God's own son and of how you can be saved and you basically walked over it. Severe punishment. So thirdly this morning, there are degrees of punishment. I don't, we, wouldn't, we don't want to think of levels. We just want to just be quiet and just trust God is just. He will render justice, which means each one will be judged according to his deeds. Fourthly, the experience of hell is most commonly depicted and associated with fire. Hell is associated with fire. I'm going to take a few moments on this. This is important. Quickly, you're not going to have time to turn to these references. Genesis 19, verse 24. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a little preview of hell, if you will. Brimstone and fire came from the Lord out of heaven. Just rained down upon that place. Interesting. I have no basis for this. This is only in my own head, so be careful with this. But, you know, the places where Sodom and Gomorrah were is the Dead Sea, interestingly, the lowest place on earth, where a lot of the salt that a lot of us consume is still taken from. And it just occurred to me this week, you know, if you have fire and brimstone coming down from heaven, I don't know the geology of it, I don't understand, but it burns so hot, so it consumes the earth. That may be one of the reasons why that is the lowest place on earth. I mean, that fire and brimstone burns up the cities, burns up the ground, burns it up so much that that place becomes a hole. I understand that there's a fault line there and so forth, but fire from heaven, judgment. 
God is revealed as a God of justice. And in his justice, Psalm 97, verse 3, we read, Fire goes before him, burns up his adversaries round about. Fire is the expression in the scriptures of God's anger, of God's wrath towards sin and all that is opposed to him in his goodness and his glory and his people. Fire goes before him, the psalmist says, burns up his adversaries. Hell is the burning up of his adversaries with a perpetual fire. It's a perpetual statement of the ongoing, unremitting opposition, holy fire and anger of God opposed to his devil and his angels and all those who deny him and his son. Isaiah 66, verse 24, there's a preview of hell when we're told that even the saints in the last day at one point will go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, says God. For their worm does not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to mankind. I don't understand how that works. We're just simply being told that there will be a perpetual burning, which will be a perpetual, ongoing representation and experience of the anger and wrath of God. Interesting, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, we looked at this passage last week, when the Ancient of Days, that is, God is seen by Daniel on his throne, Most High God. In verse 10 of chapter 7 in Daniel, we read, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. The fire in hell is not the devil's fire. It's God's fire. And it's an expression of his holiness and of his character. He's not ashamed of his fire. We may be ashamed of hell in this day. We may make jokes about fire and brimstone. It's no joke. It pertains to the very person of God. very character of God, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son, by the way, shares with the Father this fire. In Revelation, Jesus is revealed to the Apostle John, his eyes full of fire. Speaking of his holiness, And if you have a view of Jesus that somehow he does not share the Father's wrath, you have a low view and unbiblical view of Jesus. He's one with the Father. He is the one who commits the unrighteous to hell. In keeping with all of his character. Jesus referenced hell as fiery quickly Matthew 5 22 he called it fiery hell Matthew 5 rather 7 verse 19 he referred to every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire Matthew 13 verse 40 just as the tares are gathered and burned up with fire so shall it be at the end of the age The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 18, 8. We're just looking at references where Jesus refers to hell as eternal fire. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled and lame than to have two hands and feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Matthew 25, we've already read it. Verse 41, he calls hell eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 43, Jesus calls it the unquenchable fire. And then in Jude, verse 6 and 7, God knows how to keep angels under judgment, and they are an example, Jude says, quote, in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Is the fire literal? 
we need to understand that when Jesus talks about fire, we want to take it at face value. He's taking the perhaps the most terrifying form of death. It's an expression of the wrath of God. But if hell is not literal flames, we need to understand this. That what Jesus is speaking of in reality is far worse than any fire that we could ever imagine. In other words, if it is an imagery, if it is using human language to describe an experience that we, we can't really fathom, darkness and fire, gloom and fire, we have nothing to compare on earth really to hell. If, if this is language, speaking of something that is not what we think of as literal fire, understand this, it is language that is speaking of something greater in terror than actual fire. So in reality, the whole debate over literal or non-literal is, is silly. God is using the language, Christ is using the language of fire to help us understand the horror of hell, the horror of sin, the horror of judgment. Fire is an expression of God's wrath and opposition to all that is contrary to his holiness. In Nahum chapter 1 verse 6, the question is raised, who can stand before God's indignation Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Hell is the experience of the burning indignation and anger of God. Without end. There is no minimizing hell. There is no minimizing the fire or the flames. Fifth, those who are in hell are conscious and aware of their judgment. This is so important to recognize because there are many today who will teach that, okay, people are raised, they are judged, but then they just cease to exist. They take what Jesus says about destruction and they make it into annihilation. Annihilationism is a well-known and rather common view that the unrighteous are just judged, incinerated as it were, and it's over. Problem is, there's nothing in scriptures that supports that. We've already read, but in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, in that place, hell is a place prepared by God for the devil and his angels, and the unrighteous will go with them into judgment, Jesus says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says that numerous times. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, pain, remorse, experiencing the just judgment, gnashing of teeth, likely against God. In ongoing unrepentance. There's no evidence in hell that anyone has a change of mind. There's an ongoing opposition to God and to Christ, and therefore there's a gnashing of teeth and anger against God and against Christ of rebellion. But that's a conscious experience, weeping and gnashing of teeth. No one who's annihilated weeps or gnashes their teeth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of the unrighteous, Paul says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Eternal destruction. The term, if something is destroyed, it doesn't cease to be. It speaks of God's ruination. It's a good word. His ongoing ruination of every 
attempt by the devil and his angels and men and women to defy God and to act as their own. Every little life apart from Christ is like a Tower of Babel, determined to build up on its own, its own little city, its own, his or her own glory, to be God, to believe the lie of the devil, the serpent in the garden. And what hell is God's ongoing, eternal destruction of that unholy building project. For now, in God's grace, the earth is under the curse, but men and women have the experience of, of being able to build a little life and deceive themselves that they are their own gods or goddesses, that there is no God. But in hell, there will be an eternal, ongoing destruction of that idea. Conscious. Men and women won't be unconscious. How can that be judgment? Revelation 20, verse 10, we learn there that the devil who deceived unbelievers was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the prophet were also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The experience of the Antichrist, the beast, and of the false prophet, these demonically inspired, satanically controlled men in the last days, their experience of judgment will not be annihilation, but conscious torment, just torment, punishment, day and night, forever and ever. Hell is conscious, conscious experience. Destruction does not mean cease to exist. The experience of hell is described by Jesus in Matthew 7, 23 as banishment. Again, in chapter 25, verse 41, accursed ones, depart from me. There is a separation from God, but so often today, evangelical preachers and pastors don't say hell. They, they talk about being separated from God. And in so many instances, what that is, is it tacitly an open denial of hell. I don't want to tell you about hell, but I'll just tell you that if you don't accept Christ, you'll be separated from God. It's the truth, but it's uh, far less than half-truth so as to mislead. Because the unbeliever, unbelieving man or woman who doesn't want God in the first place thinks, well, no problem. I don't really want God in my life now to be separated from him. That's good with me. To be separated from God, to be banished, means that you will never, ever again experience one ounce of the common grace of God that you experience now. For now, God causes the rain to fall on the unrighteous and the righteous. The righteous and the unrighteous, the believing and the unbelieving, we alike experience some of the common graces of God. We alike experience a beautiful view or a beautiful day. We alike know some of the evidences of God's love and God's kindness. Hell, that will be gone. So to be banished from God, to be cursed, as Jesus describes, to experience the unwavering, unquenchable wrath of God, and to experience eternal darkness, Matthew 8, verse 12. It's horrible. There's enough of a description to help us understand that hell is conscious, just, horrible experience. To understand this, Isaiah 57, verse 21, it's also stated in, I believe, chapter 48. There God says, Isaiah 57, verse 21, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. To go unconscious, to sleep, or to be annihilated would be a peace. God says there is no peace for the wicked. There will be no experience of peace, but rather conscious awareness of undergoing the just, exact judgment of God for your sins 
committed in the time you had in your body. Six and finally this morning. Hell is a place of eternal judgment. It is conscious and it is eternal. It is a judgment experience without hope of end. Matthew chapter 25, turn there with me. Verse 46. These, Jesus says, that is, these unrighteous, the wicked, the unbelieving, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment, eternal life. Jesus, we've already learned has been drawing upon what has already been revealed in in the previous scriptures through the prophets. He references Daniel, for example, a lot. And here again, Jesus is simply restating what God revealed to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Through an angel to Daniel, God said, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Everlasting life, everlasting contempt. Everlasting punishment, eternal punishment, eternal life. The experience of punishment, justice, disgrace, and contempt in hell is as everlasting as the life, joy, peace, glory of the righteous with Christ in eternity. Listen very carefully. You cannot diminish the eternal conscious experience of hell without diminishing the eternal conscious experience of believers in the new heaven and new earth. They stand or fall together. You want to diminish eternal punishment, which many do today. And you just diminished the hope that is set before us. It cannot be. They are parallel. There is eternal punishment and there is eternal life. And we know for certain that those who are in Christ will be with him forever and ever and ever without end everlasting joy likewise those who apart from Christ who die in their sins experience everlasting punishment just Jonathan Edwards was perhaps the one in church history who's been most helpful thinking about why hell is eternal because of who God is it's because of who we sin against sin is measured by the nature of who we sin against God is eternally good God is infinite without end therefore the justice is infinite without end And God created us in his image. He created us to be immortal. Death was not natural. It was the judgment for sin. And death will not have the final word. God will. Hell is eternal. A definition I used years ago when I was at a previous pastor at a previous church where there was a controversy over the doctrine of hell. I described it this way. The Bible describes hell as a place and experience that God has prepared where the wicked will eternally, consciously, physically suffer the just wrath of God. Say it again. The Bible describes hell as a place and experience that God has prepared where the wicked will eternally, 
consciously, physically suffer the just wrath of God. You don't have to go to hell. In the context of what we've learned this morning, maybe some of you will hear John 3.16 like you've never heard it before. Listen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Shall not perish. That's hell. God gave his son so that whoever believes in him can have all of their sinful words and deeds justly accounted for and dealt with at the cross and put away so that by God's grace through faith in his son Jesus God gives us a savior because by grace through faith our sins are atoned for dealt with at the cross and we are united by faith with God's Son and accepted and we receive his righteousness so that we do not need to fear hell. It's very interesting that the placement of this teaching by Jesus is right before verse chapter 26 when he's about to be handed over to be crucified. Don't miss that. And as I thought about this morning, last week, and it burdens me to teach you about this because it's not pleasant. It's painful. I thought, is it a good time? Winter, people tend to be depressed and down, and I understand that in the dark days. And I thought, you know, no time is the devil's time. And in fact, actually, it's a very good time to teach on hell. Because we just rejoiced in the truth that God sent his son. And we sang all those Christmas songs, which are true. And we are coming close to the time in a few weeks, a little over a month or so, two months, when we will rejoice that Christ is risen. Between Christmas and Easter is as good a time as any to talk about hell. Because Jesus is able to save us from hell. And when we talk about salvation, when we talk about being saved, let me make very clear, this is what we mean. Saved from hell. The just judgment and penalty for our sins. You don't have to go to hell. Because if you trust in Jesus Christ, God gives you a Savior. And in 1 Thessalonians verse 10, Jesus is described this way by Paul. I love this. We are those who wait for God's Son, whom God raised from the dead, that is Jesus, listen to the description, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Have you trusted in Jesus? You say, are you trying to scare me with hell? Look at me. Yes, I am. And so is Jesus.
You should be. Everyone should be. We've sinned against God. There is no salvation from hell. No one escapes apart from Christ. Trust in him today. Let's pray. Oh God, how can we thank you for providing a Savior? Thank you. And thank you that he is such a sure Savior. We don't have to be worried about hell, those of us who are in Christ. We tremble. We grieve for those apart from Jesus. We have questions. But with the psalmist, O God, we confess you are good and you do good. All your ways are perfect. So we humble ourselves this morning. We quiet our souls. We entrust you with the questions we have. We lift up before you the ones we love who are headed to hell. Please have mercy, O God. And even this morning, save among those who are here and those who might listen to this message on the internet. We thank you for escape from hell. In Jesus, amen.